Page four in the outline will give you a bit of a, uh, a thumbnail sketch of uh, where we are. We're getting close to halfway through the Gospel of Matthew. And we are at the end of two chapters where controversies about Jesus have been discussed. And the controversies Matthew uses as an excuse or a reason to tell us a little bit more about Jesus, who is all important. And so today we come to what Bruner has pointed out uh, as six portraits in Matthew chapter 11 and chapter 12. They are at the bottom of page four. I didn't refer to them last week, but I have in weeks past. Over chapter 11 and 12, we've looked at six portraits of Jesus, the promised Messiah, the beginning of 11, the coming judge, the present savior, the one who says, come unto me, all you are tired and heavy laden, and I will grant you rest, the Sabbath Lord, the spirit king, and today, the significant kinsman, which picks up mostly on the passage at uh, the end. Thanks, neighbors, do your best to stick it back in there. So we're going to beginning, we're going to be beginning at the beginning of September with chapter 13, which deals with the parables. And I think that that's a, a good way for us to start. And so for the remainder of August, we're going to be leaving Matthew. And Deacon Marion will be sharing the word uh, in the week to follow. And um, others, perhaps, um, if uh, failing that, me, will be dealing with selected passages for the balance of August. Today, our passages can be summarized under three headings. The controversy involving a sign. After all, this is two, two chapters dealing with controversies. And then Jesus adds to it a warning. It sounds like it might be a warning to would-be landlords, but which is spiritually more important than that about the danger of a freshly cleaned vacant house. And then in the third section, we have the blessing of a redefined family. And I put some spaces between the second and third paragraphs because the third paragraph is really a summary to the preceding two chapters. In the midst of all of the controversy and all of the splitting and division that's going on among people's families and lives when they decide to become a follower of Jesus, Jesus summarizes the passage by talking about a renewed family. And so we have a controversy involving the asking of a sign, the danger of a spiritual house left vacant, and the blessing of a reconfigured family. Let's begin by looking at the controversy of asking Jesus for a sign. And I'll read the passage again uh, from the translation on page one, as I often do. Then certain scribes and Pharisees responded, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And the respondent said to them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given it, except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Or, just as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Then Jesus goes on and talks about how two different Gentile uh, constituencies got more information than this generation, and yet they repented. And so they will rise up at the end and condemn this evil generation. Notice how this happens 
this reference occurs, this evil generation. Um, once at the beginning of our two paragraphs, another time at the end of our two paragraphs, and then twice in the middle section. Obviously, this is a condemnation of an evil generation, and it raises the question to us, how righteous a generation are we as a church today? Jesus says an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given it, except the sign of Jonah the prophet. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I felt like I needed a sign from God. Um, and I, I felt a little immature at times like that, but I'm sure that you've maybe gone through a similar case where you're at a crossroads and you just feel as though you need to have an answer from God. In my case, uh, I was wondering about whether to uh, propose to the person who's now my wife, Marion. Marion likes to remind me that I actually had already asked her to marry her and then got nervous and asked for the sign to confirm it, but that's hair splitting. Anyway, I was in my student apartment at a place like Wycliffe College, it was in Connecticut, and um, I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I don't do this very often, I feel kind of silly asking it, but it's obviously a big deal, you know, marriage is a huge commitment. So I wonder if you would give me a sign about whether I should marry Marion or not. And I swear, I was on my knees, on my, um, on my uh, sofa couch, saying that prayer when the phone rang. And I picked up the phone, and I heard three words, listen to this. And then there was a silence. And then I could hear a song. And the song said this, and uh, I'm not a very good singer, but I'll, give, I'll try to do it anyway. I sentence you to life with Mary Ann. I sentence you to life with Mary Ann. And then the phone hung up. Well, that's pretty direct, isn't it? I mean, what are the chances of that happening in, in, in the blue? Well, I don't know whether you know Kenny Rogers, but one of Kenny Rogers' songs is um, I sentence you to life with Mary Ann, where the judge, uh, I think, allows uh, the, uh, the person to marry his daughter. Well, I began to think. Uh, I asked for a sign, and so I got one. But there are a few problems. I'm a little bit worried about um, what, what does it mean? A life sentence? Uh, this is Kenny Rogers, and does God speak through Kenny Rogers? And then the third thing was, Lord, her name isn't Mary Ann, but Mary Ann. Uh, so, to, uh, to fill out the story, my brother, my younger brother, who was a pilot, knew that I was struggling with this question. And when he came home from a, a flight, uh, he went in through the door of his room and he just hit the remote uh, to listen to some music. And on came this uh, part of Kenny Rogers' song, I sends you to life to Marianne, I sends you to life to Marianne. So he thought, well, Glenn's struggling with this question. Maybe, maybe it's a sign. I'll give him a call. So that's why he was so terse when he told me. Um, so, uh, it raises even the question, if God speaks through Kenny Rogers, what's the likelihood he speaks through your kid brother, right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, that's even, even something more. So it raises the question, I guess, for, um, uh, for us as well as for the Pharisees. The Pharisees, after all, you gotta, you gotta give them credit. I mean, the Jesus thing was a really tough call. Hindsight is 20-20. 
And I think we Christians can often sort of get the idea that um, the Pharisees were spiritually blind, which Jesus tells us they are. But there's certainly room for us to be empathetic. I mean, here is a, a, a man who's doing astounding things, but it's, it's not quite what they expected. And so when asking for a sign, um, what they're asking for is something different than a miracle. A miracle is something that um, a magician could conjure up. I mean, if you didn't know better and you were naive, you'd think that uh, a magician was maybe um, divinely empowered, right? But a sign is something that comes from God. It's like calling down fire from heaven and down it comes. There's no question that you could do that. It comes from, from downwards. And so they asked Jesus for a sign. And his response to them uh, is followed by parentheses in verse 39. And that's because if you look at the parallel passage at the very end in Mark's gospel, Jesus says, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And then he goes on to say, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and then uh, departed. So the bottom line here, I think, is that Jesus is saying to them, you ought to know better. I mean, really, in effect, what more can I do? Um, I've raised the dead. I've healed people. Um, I've pointed to uh, prophetic passages that point to me. And ironically, when you think about it, and Matthew is always looking for a reason to uh, tell us again that Jesus is God. Jesus, give us a sign from God. He's sort of just saying, well, who do you think I am? I mean, what do you think I've been doing, right? Like I've been raising the dead. I've been, I've been rebuking people. I've been uh, bringing uh, sight to the blind, uh, allowing uh, dumb people to speak, and so on. And so he calls them an e adulterous and evil generation. And then he refers to the fact that no sign will be given. That is, God will give no sign except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, Jonah the could have functioned as a sign in a number of ways. He could have uh, been a sign as a preacher, uh, including a preacher to the Gentiles. Uh, but in the elaboration that we see in verse 40, just as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. It seems pretty clear, isn't it, that Jesus is talking about his death. And although his resurrection isn't mentioned, you can't help but think three days and three nights and then you know what's coming next, right? His resurrection. So Jesus is saying, you won't get a sign except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And one day in the near future, when I rise from the dead, uh, that, if anything is, else is needed, will be your sign. Because people don't raise themselves from the dead. We know from Paul and the epistles that God raised Jesus from the dead in testimony to the fact that when he died on the cross, that that was an apt punishment and satisfaction for the sins that we committed. And so it's an assurance of our salvation. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. If you're wondering about the discrepancy between three days and three nights and between Friday night and Sunday morning, I think there's a note to that effect. I want to go on to the next passage, the next part of the passage, because it moves towards um, Jesus' 
focus towards us as Gentiles. And he chooses in verses 41 and 42, two groups of people who did a better job and who were less of an evil generation. Ninevites will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Noah, at the preaching of Jonah. And then in verse 42, he says, the queen of the south, 1 Kings chapter 10, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Look closely at verses 41 and 42, and you'll see that the word repent and the word listen are used together. The queen of the south heard the word. The people of Nineveh repented. So one of the applications of this passage, I think, is that when you hear the word of God, um, there is the need to respond. And one of the ways that we respond is by paying attention and um, obeying what we hear when we study God's word together. And that's one of the reasons why uh, preaching is emphasized to the extent that it is at Christ the King. We believe that the Bible is God's word and that in a in a very sacramental kind of a sense that when the word is preached, the Holy Spirit has free reign in our midst and is working in our lives and is assuring some, uh, prodding others, uh, drawing others to himself. And so that's why we dwell on the word to the extent that we do. Jesus says something else in verses 41 and 42, and it might sound familiar for as it should, or it should, at the end of talking about Jonah, Jesus says, and look, more than Jonah is here. And then at the end of verse 42, he says, and look, more than Solomon is here. You remember back earlier in chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus said, uh, look, something more than the temple is here. And so I think Jesus is continuing with his theme of signs. And if you, if you think about it, and you think about the context in which those passages are found, one of them is in the Torah, the other is in the prophets, and the other is in what are called the writings. And so Jesus here is saying something more than the second part of the Old Testament is here and the prophecy that was found in it. Something more than the third part of the Old Testament is here and um, something more profound uh, is to be seen there. So in essence, what Jesus is saying by talking about the temple and Jonah and wisdom is that I am the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. So Jonah, as I point out on page four in the outline, is actually a code word for part two of the Old Testament. And wisdom is a code word for part three of the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying to the people who are asking for a sign, look guys, I'm full of LED and I'm flashing neon and I'm 44 feet tall and 35 feet wide and nobody has ever seen a sign like the sign you're looking at right now, right? So I'm annoyed and I'm calling you an evil generation. And no doubt he's right. My friends, it's no less true today that when you look and read about Jesus and you learn about his resurrection and you study his miracles, which we have seen sometimes in weeks past as we've looked at even skeptical and unbelieving uh, scholars, 
I mean, no one like this has ever lived before. Um, I, don't, I don't care whether you're an atheist or whether you're an agnostic or whether you're, you're, a, you're a Christian. Um, it's virtually impossible to doubt that Jesus lived, that Jesus uh, was believed to have performed miracles, because even his, uh, his enemies didn't deny it. They simply said, well, you're doing it by the devil. And then there's the resurrection. The other thing that people are pretty well unanimous about is that something happened after this guy died that gave birth to the church. You see, uh, false prophets or uh, messiahs, people who claim to be messiahs, were sort of a dime a dozen. And what happens is you make a claim to be a prophet or a messiah, and then people wonder whether you really are the messiah, and then you die. And then when you die and you didn't fulfill what was supposed to happen in the life of a messiah, you go on to the next guy and his name gets forgotten. But in the case of Jesus, what happened was he died and then all of a sudden there was this explosion. His name didn't disappear, but all of a sudden people began doing amazing things in his name. They had newfound courage. They were marching across the world and people's lives were being changed. And in the life of the apostles, in many cases, miracles continue to be performed. And we can read about that today, and we can hear about it today, and there's lots of evidence. Now let's be careful, though. Evidence can be used as a sign, right? So on the one hand, uh, Christians are not gullible, easy believers. But on the other hand, we can't sort of say to God, one more sign and I'll believe because that puts us in the driver's seat. Towards the end of the handout, I have a, a, a question about um, on page uh, nine. Um, is it okay to ask for a sign from God? And I quote Bruner in reference to this passage. Jesus responds by saying that signs are not delivered on demand. They're not for show or for sale to the most urgent bidder. In fact, in Jesus' words, a perverse and marriage-breaking generation seeks passionately for a sign. It's not a good sign when people ask for signs. Excessively sensual people love sensations. Reasonable people find Jesus sufficient. The more erratic and erotic persons are, the more they're taken in by the senses. The remarkable, the impressive, and the less susceptible they are to the quiet, solid marks by which divinity prefers to be documented. In this one verse, Jesus uses the word sign three times with emphasis, as if to underline the evil of the search for it. The point, surely, is that already in Jesus' life, God has pulled out all the stops, given all of his signs, delivered all of his proofs, Something has to be wrong with the quest, then, for additional signs. In the handout on page uh, four, as a point of application, I think I've, I've, I've summarized it as best I can. Friends, asking for signs from God is generally very dubious. Not the least because we can make of them what we will. I mean, I could have said, um, I could have gone through with the relationship with Marion on the grounds that Marion was close enough, or I could have said, sorry, you're close, but I'm looking apparently for a Marion and not a Marion. Or 
a life sentence. Is that talking about the commitment of marriage, or is that like getting thrown in jail for the rest of your life, right? So there's always a subjective element, and we can always turn into it what we want. Somebody told me they went to bed asking for a sign about whether they should go on a trip, and they woke up at 7.47 the next morning. Is that a sign? 7.47. Well, if you're tired and you want a trip, you bet it's a sign. And uh, if, if, uh, if you're a little more dubious, then it's not a sign. In other words, they're subjective. They are also counter to faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And they also seek to force the hand of God. So I thought quite a bit about it this week. And you'll notice that in the course of my sermons week by week, I do not say, like I used to say sometimes, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because that kind of says, in effect, this is God's word. And I think he, I'm a mere human being. I'm just a medium through which the word is mediated, right? So if it really is a word from God, you don't need me to tell you that. And my telling you that doesn't make it the word of God if it's not, or it doesn't make it it in the word of God if it isn't. But this is the best shot that I had in it, and I think it's pretty good. Um, based on the scriptures. They can be subjective, they're counter to faith, and, to see, and they seek to force the hand of God. Now that doesn't mean that God can provide, that God can't provide a sign when he wants to. So in other words, if God thinks it's important to tell you something specific, he'll decide, right? That's what he did with Simon Peter in, uh, in, in, in Acts. I mean, God came down to him and said, I want you to eat this pig. And Peter said, no way, not going to do it. And then there was a second time when he got the vision. I want you to do this. And then I think it was a third time. And so uh, if God wants to tell us something, particularly that seems to be counter to Scripture, and I'm alluding to a sexual ethic issue that's uh, dividing our church today, I think it's fair that if Scripture is clear about something, as it seems to be in the case of a Jew eating Gentile food, that God would... Make it real clear by coming down from heaven and saying, look, you're not understanding this properly. And in the meantime, we follow God's word and we rely on God to provide us a sign if we need it. Actually, in the case of, Je of Peter and, the, and eating the Gentile food, there was a reason. Um, that food uh, symbolized the Gentiles. And what made the Jewish people different from pagans and Gentiles was their kosher meal. And so God was coming along and saying to Peter, Peter, I've broken down that barrier now. It's no longer just kosher alone for you. Uh, my program is broader now, and the time has come for uh, there to be a new understanding. And uh, I'm sure that if God has a different will for the church than what's revealed clearly in Scripture, that God will do that. And in the meantime, uh, we don't seek for signs. We read our Bibles, we say our prayers, we seek to be faithful. And we look to God to change our minds dramatically and definitively in something like an ecumenical council if he wants us to do something different. Well, let's move on then to the second part where Jesus then goes on and returns to the theme about being expelled by demons. You remember last week, they accused Jesus of expelling demons by Beelzebul. And it's almost as though Jesus still had this in mind. And he says, okay, well, let me tell you something. If a demon is expelled from a house, the house is vacant. 
and somebody will come along and it's all tidy and ready for future occupancy, right? But if nobody comes along and occupies it and takes advantage of the new reno, other people will come in and occupy it and become bad tenants. I think that's essentially what Jesus is saying here in the second paragraph. We'll read it together. The danger of freshly cleaned yet still uncommitted spiritual house. Notice the word uncommitted. Um, it's translated um, uh, empty in most translations, but it means something more than that. It means uh, at ease, relaxed, uncommitted. Now, when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest that finds none. Then it says, I will re-enter my house from whence I came. And upon coming, it finds it uncommitted, swept, and tidy. Then it goes and brings along with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and with them in tow, it lives there. With them in tow, it lives there. And the end for that person becomes worse than the initial. This is also how it will be for this evil generation. At the beginning of the week, I struggled quite a lot to find out what this passage was about. It was hard to relate to the, uh, to the context. And uh, I couldn't figure it out on my own, but there's a consensus among the commentators that Jesus is saying, in essence, when I do a dramatic work in the life of a group of people, like I'm doing right now amongst all of you uh, Jews, or you could extrapolate that and say, when I do a work in your life to show myself to you, and you become convinced that I'm real and that I can cleanse you and that I have cleansed you, friends, here's the bottom line. Seize the moment. You see, what the Jews were doing is they were saying, well, he might be, he might not be. I don't know, we're going to think about it for a while. So they left this clean, vacant space that Jesus had made, and they left it unattended to. They were uncommitted. It was swept and tidy, but no one was willing to sign on the dotted line. And Jesus says, if you do that, the danger exists. That the bad guy's going to come back, and he's going to come back with a bunch of his buddies, and they're going to trash the place so that it was worse before Jesus made his house clean. I think the application is obvious, and it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't come from me, it comes from Scripture. Jesus is saying that if he has done something dramatic in the life of another individual or group, there is a moment when we need to decide and to say, okay, I'm in. Because if we're not, then that leaves room for somebody else to come and occupy it and for us to be worse off than before. There's been the odd time that I can think of when somebody has made a profession of faith, and for whatever reason, we're going to learn more about that in the parables next month, there hasn't been the kind of follow-through that one might have hoped for or expected. And in that case, sometimes that individual seems to be more afflicted than ever before. And it's almost as though the, the switch from pure light, uh, from darkness to pure light, has made it such that all of a sudden now, having seen pure light, they now know what pure utter darkness really looks like. Well, I think it comes down to this. If God is seeking in our life as a church, 
And God is working dramatically in our life as a church or in your life as uh, an interested Christian wondering about the truth of the faith or a Christian who sees the next stage in his or her life where God is really speaking to you. The clock is ticking. And the offer isn't made for, so we can sort of say, eh, yeah, take it or not. The offer is made as an act of grace. And we respond to grace by commitment. And so uh, the way that I think I put it as best I could in the outline by way of application uh, is on page uh, five at the top. In the wake of Jesus' cleansing and healing ministry, willfully and purposely sign a lifelong lease of the clean space he created for you. Or it will be infested with more demons than before Christ cleaned. Let's explore what that means for a moment. I don't think it means that you have to be 100% convinced. I don't think it means that God has necessarily opened every door in your life or cleaned every nook and cranny in your life. But to me, most people who become Christians or who grow in their Christian faith, they say something like this, Lord, I don't understand fully, but I'm willing to give you as much as I understand about you to you. Um, there's lots I don't know. There's lots more I'd like to know. There's lots of things I'd like to learn. There are lots of ways in which I don't have my house in order. But you've tidied my house and you've made advances in my life. And I want to claim that. And I want to occupy that space with purpose and with determination. The word empty is, a, is, an, is an odd one. It, it, it means um, relaxed, laissez-faire, um, not really interested in doing a whole lot. And it reminds you of Jesus' criticism that we saw in chapter 11 where Jesus says, you know, you guys, you're laissez-faire. I mean, John comes along and he does the somber thing and you sort of go, mm, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I come along and I do the joyous thing, and you say, mm, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I think as I said a few weeks ago in that sermon, it's time to fish or cut bait. And that's the message of Jesus in this passage. And I trust that even this afternoon that you'll do that. Perhaps during a time of silence before prayer that you'll do that. Perhaps if you want a little help and a little encouragement, you'll come to another brother and sister in Christ and say, you know, I just there's a lot of stuff I don't get, but I know God is speaking to me, and uh, I would really like your help. And um, um, any number of us would be more than thrilled and happy to do that. So we have the controversy of sign asking, which was an especially bad idea in the case of asking Jesus for a sign. It's like asking the Pope if he's Catholic, right? I mean, it's just kind of one of those things where you don't even need to ask. And in the second, there's the danger of the freshly clean, yet still uncommitted space of house. And then thirdly, is the blessing of a redefined family. And here comes some assurance. If you're thinking about what the cost might be of making a commitment to Jesus, um, depending on your culture, it might cost you everything. Uh, depending on your uh, place in society, it might cost you uh, a high-paying job or some pretty dubious things happen at work. Uh, it might make you less cool in front of a certain number of your friends. It might cause strain with your spouse if your spouse is not a believer and you're thinking about becoming one. But here's some good news, and it's illustrated by Jesus' mother and Jesus' brother who come along, and we read in verses 46 to 50. While still speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers, and Matthew knows what he's saying, stood outside. 
That's code language, or here is biofam actually on the outside. And they were looking to talk to Jesus. And then verse 47 has probably been added at a later time. We know enough about the text of the New Testament for scholars to be able to make sober judgments about that. I've said to us a time or two before, we have 103% of the Word of God, and there's debate about what constitutes the extra 3% or not. Verse 48, but he replied to the one who spoke to him, saying, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And then wait for Jesus, the teacher, to give his lesson. And then he stretched out his hand. And when I looked up the words this week about stretching out his hand, it's the kind of thing that Moses does when he wants uh, God to part the Red Sea. Uh, when he stretches out his hand, once it just means getting attention, but most everywhere else in Scripture, it's a signal that something supernatural is about to happen. And so Jesus, by stretching out his hand over his disciples, he says, look, my brother, my mother, my sister, that comes in verse 60, 50. He doesn't forget the sister. This is not inclusive language. Jesus was already inclusive. He says, look, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in the heavens, that is the one who is my brother, sister, and mother. It's a whole new family. And uh, one of the reasons why you tell us in the survey that you like coming to Christ again is you find it's like family. You have fellowship with these people who come from different backgrounds than you. You feel like you're part of a family. And my friends, that is something that God does in the wonder of reconstituting and adopting a new family. He stretches his hand out over, over us and says, this person from this background, that person from that other background, this person from this generation, this person from this generation, this person from this socioeconomic status, that socioeconomic status, we're all a family. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in the heavens, Jesus said, that is the one who is my brother, my sister, and my mother. You just add a little footnote that I was surprised to notice. And I assume that what Jesus was doing was saying, you have to sort of say goodbye to those people to adopt this. But he doesn't, and I have a note about that. Jesus isn't telling us here, there's no indication on the part of Matthew that it's, it's Jesus is sort of being disrespectful to his mother and his brothers. He's saying, look, I have a broader family. This is my family, and my family is the one who does the will of my brother, sister, and mother. So friends, if you've left your family because you become a Christian and you didn't have any choice about it, do your best to honor them as best as you can within the confines of your, your own Christian faith commitment. There may be point parts of the culture, such as honoring the ancestors and that kind of thing, where you have to say, look, mom, dad, I love you. Great uncle, great aunt, I love you, but I, I'm a Christian and I simply can't do that. It doesn't mean that I don't respect my family. It doesn't mean that I don't honor my family. It just means that as a Christian, I need you to trust that I love you, even though I won't do this particular thing. Huge obstacle prevails in, Ch in Japan to this day. It just seems like it's very un-Japanese to become a Christian, and it's important in Japanese culture to honor your family. So let me conclude by asking you to focus on one of three things. I'm going to ask you to pick one. 
Um, and if you decide not to, I won't know, okay? But ask which one of these things God might be speaking to you. Are you an inherent doubter and are constantly looking for yet one more piece of evidence before you commit? And if so, Jesus says it's subjective, faith is the game, you're going to manipulate your way out of the situation and have your own way anyway. It's time to commit. Another one might be, if you're not tempted to look for a sign, is to ask what you're going to do with the space that God has made in your life. You know he's been working in your life and you've seen progress. Jesus is saying, claim that ground this afternoon. Because the offer comes at my will. It's my grace. And there's no, uh, there's no guarantee that the house is going to remain empty. In fact, there's somebody else that's wanting to come along and occupy it. Peter writes that the devil is a lion roaring, looking for someone to devour. And so that is always a possibility. Or thirdly, if you've had a hard time and you're feeling disenfranchised from family and friends, Thank God for the blessing of this new family of which you're a part. And do what you can to let other people who are newly coming into the faith know that you are a true brother or a true sister or a true mother or a true father in the faith. Amen. <laughs>